The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Hello there and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. We're continuing our narrative saga, the story, the history of the political career of Bertie Ahern. We've reached episode 745 now, I think. Pat Leahy, Pat is our political editor, of course. Um, And Pat, I should say also, uh, wrote the book or wrote the books uh, on this very subject, didn't you? I did, Hugh. Yes, thanks. Um, I wrote a book uh, called Showtime, which was published in 2009, which was about this whole period of Bertie Ahern's dominance of Irish politics, basically running from the early 90s until his departure in uh, in 2008. I should add, um, for the sake of modesty, of course, that um, I'm not just the guy who wrote the book on this. I'm a guy who wrote a book on this. I think there's yeah, other very fine books about it. There are books. indeed some, but many would say that, that you, including me, that, that yours is the best and I would heartily recommend it to our listeners. If Just, it can be found in remaindered in any secondhand bookshops now, I urge them to go out and buy it. Is it available digitally? Uh, I suppose it is. I yeah, so there you go. It's available forever. Anyway, in terms of where we had got to, we had arrived at uh, Bertie Ahern after many trials and tribulations um, Becoming Taoiseach in 1997. But how, remind us, how did he get there? He's elected Taoiseach on the 26th of June, 1997. And that is after an election which really he should probably not have won. The incumbent government at that stage, as we discussed in the last episode, led by John Bruton of Fine Gael and including the Labour Party and Democratic left, had been reasonably popular. People thought they were doing a good job. Uh, The economy was in a better state than it had ever been before. And there was a general sense of youthful optimism almost uh, in uh, in the country. But a a really clever election campaign maximised nearly every vote uh, that he could get. And a personally... Uh, brilliant election campaign by Bertie Ahern in his first election as a national leader in a campaign that was a Fianna Fáil campaign that was very much you know was very much arranged around him and expressed the force of his leadership uh, he ended up winning a very narrow victory and though he didn't command a majority in the uh, in the Dáil in his coalition with the PDs. There were a few votes short of it. Um, he put together a minority government with the support of a small number of, uh, of independents. On the day he was elected Taoiseach, he had the support of three of them. Jackie Healy-Ray, whose two sons are current members of the, of the Dáil, Mildred Fox and Harry Blaney. All and of whom could be described as Fianna Fáil gene pool independence. So uh, one of the interesting things about this is there have always been these arrangements with independence in the Irish political system, but this this one seemed a bit more blatant and upfront, maybe. Yeah, so I suppose the predecessor of this arrangement was the deal that Charlie Hawhey did with Tony Gregory, the Dublin Central TD, in his short-lived government in 1982. And Tony Gregory was very upfront at that stage in return for his support of Charles Hawhey, his vote for Charles Charles Hyde to make him Taoiseach. He got a bunch, uh, a bunch of projects approved, a load of money basically for things in his uh, in his constituency, and that was very much the that was very much a model that was followed by Jackie Healy, Ray, Mildred Fox, and Harry Blaney. How do we know this? Because they said it in their speeches in the Dáil when they said they would um, uh, they were going to support Bertie Ahern's nomination for uh, for for Taoiseach. And if you go back and look at the, the the Dáil records, you'll see you know Mildred Fox who's saying that she had studied the program for government produced by. Uh, the Progressive Democrats and Fianna Fáil, which of course led to much hilarity in the House. And uh, and then she went on to give a long list of projects uh, in her constituency that she was delighted to announce the government would now support. A secondary school in Kilcool, a veterinary office in East Wicklow, a sub-office of Wicklow County Council in Blessington. This was a matter of urgency, she said. And so on and so on. And then Jackie Ely-Ray 
uh, got to his uh, got to his feet and he had various demands he wanted uh, an extension of the tourist season in uh, in South Kerry he wanted a replacement for the pretty poly tights factory in uh, in Killarney which had just uh, which had just closed and, uh, and and various other things uh, would you like to hear my Jackie Healy Ray impression um, I, I, I don't think I have a choice, Pat. You're going to hear it anyway. Uh, during my campaign, many matters were raised with which I have to deal with with the incoming government. Since the closure of the pretty poly factory in Killarney, very few industrial jobs have been created in South Kerry. Many people travel long distances to find work. We require significant new industry for Killarney and other areas of the constituency. We want to extend the tourist season in South Kerry. And on and on went. There was going to be a resumption of live cattle exports, a new pier in Croman, cheaper car insurance for the under-25s, and etc, etc. And he finished off by saying, do not write me off, I'm warning you. So, <laughs> better than your Bertie, I have to say, by the way. Um, I'm getting into these. So that is, ultimately, these four independents supporting them, four PDs in three, the Yeah, three government. independents supporting at this stage. Tom Gilday yeah. comes on Joins board later. later so four on. PDs. So four in theory, PDs. the PDs should be a very small part of this particular omnibus episode of, of, of Irish politics. They'd had a terrible election themselves. Four is a pretty negligible number. Um, did they have much impact? They had enormous uh, impact in particular areas of, of government policy. And, and on this occasion of, of, of Ahern's uh, electionist teacher, Pat Rabbit, who was then in the... the Democratic left and uh, would go on to lead the Labour Party. He kind of joked that the independents would have more influence on government policy than the PDs. But actually, he couldn't have been uh, more wrong because the PDs, in an alliance with Charlie McCreevy, would really run economic policy in this government. And that would have huge, far-reaching effects um, for for the country, which are felt still to today, despite the fact that they that they had only four TDs, and in a way, you know, they are you know that the, the the template for a small party that is ideologically committed, politically ruthless, and willing to prioritize what it wants to do in government can have an influence which is completely out of proportion to uh, to its numbers. And, you know, we, we, we have seen that. And, and, and that might be particularly the case when a government at its outset has fair winds behind it. And actually, this government probably was arriving into the most propitious economic circumstances of any government in the history of the state. Yeah, there's no question about that. And we referenced this uh, in the previous episode um, when we talked about Rory Quinn, who was the Labour finance minister in the Rainbow government, being the first finance minister in Irish history to return uh, return a, sur- a surplus. And this is, I mean, it goes back to that point that we've touched on again and again in the course of our conversation, which is about this 1997 election being a real turning point for modern Ireland, a real fork in the road. Because at this point, the, econo- you know, the country's economy is about to take off and therefore provide the sort of resources for Whatever government was in uh, was was in power to realise its policy uh, objectives at that point, we not alone get a centre right government, centre right alliance between Fianna Fáil and the press, Progressive Democrats, but we get uh, an alliance that is really focused on that tax cutting and economic liberalisation agenda, and that really makes the country for uh, for really the next uh, the next two decades. But it's important to point out that none of this is apparent at this time, and we're you know where we are in our where 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 are we in our our our, our narrative? We're at the end of June. 1997. And those big pictures are not what people see day to day in their newspapers or here on their radios. There are challenges and there are crises and there are problems to be solved for the new government. And for this government more than most, because almost immediately it's pitched into a number of political controversies. Um, the first was uh, Charles High arrives to give his evidence at uh, the McCracken Tribunal in July. And he admits that uh, he is a politician who has received this 1.3 million from uh, from Ben Dunn. And that probably isn't a huge surprise to lots of people because it's been hinted at in the media. It's been referenced in the media. Some of the Tribune has written a story saying Charlie High will say that he is, uh, he is the guy. But High has to go in and on pain of his legal team walking because he's lied to everybody, including his legal team, about getting this money from Ben Dunn. But he has to go in and accept it. And it's this 
huge moment where all the high stuff immediately, so much of which had been on a kind of a nod and a wink and people, you know, talking about it. In that whole period, people were talking about who is the Mr. Big who has got the 1.3 million from But that's so uh, characteristic of everything to do with high, isn't it? Everybody knew, but nobody said it. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I guess so. And But this is the beginning of the end, uh, the end of mm. that, and there was a, there will be a subsequent tribunal, but this is the first tribunal. So really, you know, the media gives it the whole treatment, um, really. And of course, you know, this is a huge, this is a huge political event, but it's also there's also kind of a hello quality to the revelations of Hawley's tremendous wealth, and uh, uh, and even in the sober Irish Times, Hugh, uh, we gave it the hello treatment and uh, surely not would you believe why don't I read it he lives in a 200-year-old mansion, Abbeville, in Kinsley, County Dublin. He keeps horses, and the extensive wooded grounds contain a lake. His red-brick wine cellar is said to boast some of the wine world's most prestigious labels. A Chateau Margaux, 1956, a Mouton Rothschild, 1967, and a Chateau Lafitte, 1920. He is the owner of a £200,000 50-foot catch, the Celtic Mist. Inish Vicolon, Mr. Heiss, County Kerry Island, is accessible only by helicopter in the calmest weather. The dining room is believed to contain beams fashioned from beech trees felled by the storms in Abbeville. The table can seat 12 comfortably and the host's bedroom is said to contain a healthy stock of expensive clarets. Sounds lovely. Now we could take a 15 episode detour into the story of Charlie Hawley but we're not actually going to do that. But what what impact did all this have on the new Ahern-led government? I think there's a judgement made by Mary Harney and people uh, in the PDs at this point is that they can jump up and down every time there's a revelation at the tribunals. And this is the age of the tribunals now that is dawning along with everything uh, else. Or we can say we're letting the tribunals do their work and get on with this extraordinary opportunity that they have at a time of such economic potential uh, in the country. And they make the latter the latter decision. So they do that with Hawhey. And then, crucially, they do it two months later when Ray Burke, who is Minister for Foreign Affairs, has to resign over uh, revelations uh, about his past. And this trundles all summer. What kind of things are we talking about here? Uh, receipt, Ray it's, the receipt, it's the receipt of money from uh, from campaign donors and there's all sorts of media stories going around some of them name Burke some of them uh, some of them don't and in August um, Burke uh, releases a statement and he's decrying this vicious campaign of rumour and innuendo a campaign of calumny and abuse which he decries because all this is you know, huge lies he goes into the Dáil in September and uh, and he issues this stirring defence uh, of himself says he does nothing wrong admits to uh, receiving a political donation of of £30,000, which he, needless to say, was totally totally unsolicited. Um, And he goes on afterwards and he goes out to the media, out on the plinth, and he says, here comes my Ray Burke impression, he says, whatever comes out of the woodwork from now on, a line in the sand, from this day on, D-Day, I am going on to the peace process, the United Nations, and to Europe, and no further. Within a month, um, he's forced to resign. Do the PDs defenestrate Ray Burke or does he have to go on the basis nah, of what's he, found out he, ha- he has to go. Now, Harney is, Harney is very, very uneasy with these revelations. So, so there's, questions about, there's questions about Ray Burke's appointment in, uh, to Cabinet in the first place back in June. And Ahern famously says that he's been up and down every tree in North Dublin looking uh, for... Uh, you know, looking for the goods on Ray Burke, but he has nothing actionable. He actually goes as far as asking the guards, are there any investigations here? They say there's no investigations ongoing, but these things tend not to be found out by the guards. They tend to be found out by journalists. Can I just quickly ask you, just just the overall picture of this, all this stuff is coming out, most of it, not all of it, but most of it attaches to Fianna Fáil. How dirty was Fianna Fáil and how big is that shadow hanging over this government, which includes many members, including Bertie O'Hearn, who were part of those governments? Well, we subsequently find out, right, in the reports of the various tribunals that planning, that, that planning corruption, for one thing, uh, in some parts of Fianna Fáil is almost uh, endemic. Now, at this period, there is a culture in Irish politics, not all of Irish politics, but in much of Irish politics at this time of uh, of guys receiving money, perhaps, perhaps not, 
for uh, for favours. And you know, when we talk about the age of the tribunals, there is ten or fifteen years is spent excavating this culture. And you know, your question is how dirty is Fianna Fáil uh, at this stage by modern standards, by the standards that we established all that ethics legislation, uh, you know, Fianna Fáil is filthy because there's loads of people taking money from developers and other donors. But that wasn't at the time considered to be, well, there certainly there were no rules against it. No, and there's also there was also wasn't there a complete blurring of the lines between what was supposed to be political funding for campaigns and money that was just going into people's back pockets and all of that. Yeah, no, and, and, and the well. use of their own offices for private gain. Uh, but it is part of the story of this time, and it's part of the change that this ta- that this period reeks upon Irish politics and Irish public life. Uh, as a whole, is that this culture of politicians taking money is coming into the open. It is obvious to everybody that it is unsustainable. That's why Burke has to resign. So Bertie is from August on, really. He is kind of distancing himself from Burke. And Burke can see this. And he's furious. And, you know, he has a number of angry confrontations with uh, with Burke, Harney is saying like, "What is going on here? What is going on? We can't keep we can't uh, we can't keep uh, going with this." And and Bertie is at the time he's just he's trying to insulate himself and insulate his government from what is kind of becoming uh, what is kind of becoming inevitable. And the coup de grace is delivered to Burke uh, when a story comes out in the Irish Times. And the, the the story details some irregularities. It wasn't a planning corruption story or anything like that, but it details some irregularities in how he had granted a series of passports to Saudi investors, rich Saudi investors. And this is this is the last straw. And Burke resigns not just from the government, but he resigns from uh, he resigns from the Dáil uh, as well. And nobody spotted it. Uh, at the time, and I'm not sure we should read anything into it or not, but the reporter who wrote the story was the late Sean Flynn, who lived four doors down from Bertie Hearn. (laughs) Of the Irish Times, it should be said. So, let's move on to the presidential election of 1997. Mary Robinson has broken the mould with her election for the previous term. She's not running again. What happens? Yes, Mary Robinson actually leaves early. She has this groundbreaking period as uh, as president, and her election in the first place of you know the first woman, first non Fianna Fáil. But she leaves early because she's going to become the European, uh, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. So we're pitched into a presidential election. Now, presidential elections have since become unrecognisable, in part because of what Mary Robinson did to the presidency. But at the time, you know, it's an election on. Everybody assumes that you know Fianna Fáil will probably win it, and so Fianna Fáil have already made candidate, or so he thinks, in Albert Reynolds, our old friend, who has been defenestrated as, uh, as Taoiseach in 1994. And Albert does really wants to be president, and it does a lot of work commissioning polling, putting together a team, etc., etc. He has lunch with Bertie Ahern during the summer, and Bertie says, oh, you know, I won't stand in your way if you want to become... And I, I like looking at this episode, because it also is kind of indicative of the way that Bertie used to manage uh, the party. But Albert is widely disliked within... Those parts of the party, and we talked last time about this division between the country and western wing and the Hawaiite wing. And, you know, Bertie has brought them both together in government in pursuit of power. But, of course, Fianna Fáil being Fianna Fáil, the Hawaiite still despise Reynolds. And many of them have been sacked uh, from government by Reynolds when he took over as, uh, as Taoiseach in 1992, a couple of years uh, uh, beforehand. And so, you know, there's a lot of chat in the party about a candidate that is anybody but uh, but Albert. And this isn't just personal antipathy to Reynolds, though some of it definitely comes from that space. It's also because that sort of kind of, the, I suppose we call them the modernizers, the younger group, the more professionalized group around Ahern and that Ahern has brought in, think that Albert is an old-style Fianna Fáiler 
and putting an old-style Fianna Fáiler when they're trying to project a young leader for a young country is really the opposite direction to the one that they want to go. That what people want from the presidency is has changed radically since uh, since Mary Robinson has been elected. They were definitely right about that, weren't they? No, they were one hundred percent right about that. So this mixture of these two. These two things, the antipathy in parts of the party towards Albert and, 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 and the sense that he's just a kind of a backward looking sort of sign for, uh, for, for the party. So other candidates begin to, uh, you know, begin to be sounded out. Michael O'Kennedy. There was talk about John Hume running. There was some talk about Mayor Morgan Quinn being, uh, being interested. And, and eventually Mary McAleese arrives. Which is scene. unusual because not somebody who had a long career as an elected politician. No, Mary or, or, at a, this stage. or a figure at the at the front of Fianna Fáil. No, she is uh, she, at this stage. She is a lecturer in law in in Queens. Now she had run for the party previously, and she has been in you know in public life, uh, uh, if you like, previously. But she understands, I think, that. The presidency and what people expect of it has changed and that if Fianna Fáil is going to win the presidency, that it has to put something forward, something very different. So she goes on uh, on a campaign and people in the party are hugely impressed with her. And of course, the people around Ahern meet with her. They report back to him and they say, she's the real deal. She can win. Albert can't win. She can win. Is it helped by the fact that there's so much focus now on the North and so many people are thinking so much about the North? And here is Mary McAleese, an articulate, sophisticated, intelligent representative of, you know, educated Northern nationalism. It absolutely does. Yeah, it absolutely does. And, you know, we're just in the wake of the first ceasefire. The multi-party talks are struggling to get to get underway. And there is an opening I guess, of the Southern mindset to the North uh, uh, at this stage, which proceeds at a slow pace, I think it's fair to say, over the uh, over the coming years. But it's beginning to happen uh, at this stage. And that becomes important when, when the votes uh, come to be come to be taken. But first, Mary McAleese has to win the Fianna Fáil nomination. And Ahern has basically sent out signals to everybody that, oh, he's not going to stand in their way or whatever, but, you know, it'll be a decision for the parliamentary party. And this becomes sort of a hallmark of his management of the parliamentary party uh, over the period of time in government, that he can get the parliamentary party, in, in contrast, it must be said to the current incumbent, he can get usually get the parliamentary party to do what he likes without having his fingerprints all over it. And to cut a long story short, when it comes to the vote at the parliamentary party, now Ahern has assured Albert of his support. And, you know, McAleese is clearly a potent candidate and she has made very serious grounds with the, uh, in, the, in the parliamentary party, not least because members of the cabinet are ringing TDs and they're saying, you've got to vote for this woman. We can't let uh, Albert in. He'll be a disaster. And at the fateful parliamentary party meeting, that uh, TDs and... This is one of my favourite moments of this story. To vote, <laughs> to, vote for the, uh, uh, to vote for their choice. Bertie shows Albert his vote to assure him that he has... Uh, assure him of his support. Is, is that the point at which and Albert Br- knew he was no. dead? Brian Crowley, who's an MEP and a great supporter of Albert, turns to Albert and he says, you're fucked now. <laughs> and, 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 so it comes, and so it comes to pass. McAleese, uh, McAleese wins the Fall nomination. She goes on and over the course of a fairly bruising... A fairly bruising presidential it's a, it's a campaign. T- it's a tough campaign, that isn't it's it? It's a tough. Yeah. It's a mm. tough campaign. McAleese uh, goes on to win it quite easily because the whole campaign sort of becomes this peculiar sort of referendum on whether it was okay to be a Northern Catholic and involved in Southern political life, and people decided overwhelmingly that it was. There are various figures involved in that debate, particularly in the Sunday Independent and people like Owen Harris. Yeah, Owen Um, Harris describes, he's a very influential commentator at the time, he describes her as a tribal time bomb. And uh, now he subsequently goes on to recant uh, uh, his views on McAleese and acknowledges in about 
54, I think maybe before then, that, or uh, 2004, I should say, that, you know, she has done a brilliant job in building bridges with the North. And her theme of her campaign and of her presence uh, subsequently is building building bridges. Uh, and and she, she's presented as a sort of Fianna Fáil Mary Robinson. And that is just an electorally unbeatable combination. Because remember, at this stage, Fianna Fáil gets 40% every time the polls open. And so while Brian Lenehan got his 40% or so in 1990 against Mary Robinson, 40% doesn't get you there. But with McAleese, she can get transfers because Bertie O'Hearn's Fianna Fáil now gets as, transfers. As you mentioned in, in the last episode, or could even have been the one before, that this is at the core of the O'Hearn electoral strategy. Hold that thought for a moment because we're going to take a quick break and be back after this. And welcome back. We were just talking about the election of Mary McAleese before the break. And Northern Ireland, it is fair to say, Pat, in the political history of Bertie O'Hearn, is extremely important. The achievement of the Good Friday Agreement ranks right alongside, if not ahead of, the economic achievements of this first Bertie O'Hearn government that we're discussing. And it'll be always be in the history books alongside his name. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I mean, you know, Bertie led the country and the party for a long time. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's a multi-volume biography, the real one, I, I suppose. But in it, the, I suppose the Good Friday Agreement is, is, is monument in some respects. I think there are other things that are worth paying attention to and we're trying to talk a, a bit about them. But I suppose the Good Friday Agreement is probably his towering political achievement uh, in, in some respects. And, you know, I suppose, you know, we talked before about this... <laughs> We're not going to make this a, a, a podcast about the Good Friday uh, Agreement. No, and the Good Friday Agreement, it's fair to say, had many fathers. Um, it, it did, but I think it's also fair to say that none more important than Bertie Ahern. And it is hard to see how that agreement, and, you know, where are we chronologically? We're kind of, we're in late 1997, we're going into 1998. The Good Friday Agreement is, is put together in those months and then culminating on uh, Good Friday in April 1998. So it's as well to, to, to benchmark it here at this stage, I think. But I think it's fair to say that it, it, it would not have been done uh, with anybody other than Bertie Ahern as Taoiseach. And of course, you could say that of a couple of the other protagonists uh, as and well. It, but it seems to me his that particular political skills? Yes, it is, but it's also because of the courage that he shows to make that movement on behalf of Nationalist Ireland. As the leader of Nationalist Ireland, and we talked before about the difference in the offering that he was bringing to the electorate in that 1997 election, whereas John Bruton essentially wanted to see himself, I think, as an honest broker in the North, whereas Bertie Hearn wanted to be the negotiate as the leader of Nationalist Ireland. And he is the leader of Nationalist Ireland, and he moves Nationalist Ireland to acceptance, bringing militant Republican and armed Republicanism with him he moves them to a position of acceptance of the constitutional status quo in Northern Ireland until such time as a majority there, uh, as a majority there decide otherwise. And that's a huge move. And Ahern can do that because he is an instinctive, traditional nationalist, but also because he's in complete control, command of not just his own government, his own party, and because he has the the brilliant negotiating skills, not just to bring his own guys with him, but to bring the other guys as far as they possibly can, to realise what the other guys needed. And this is the genius of his negotiation is to put himself in the other guy's shoes. So there's this moment in the week of the Good Friday, uh, in the week of the agreement itself, where he is dealing, let us not forget, with the, uh, the death of his mother, to whom he was very, very close. Um, but he realises that he has to make an extra concession to keep David Trimble uh, in the room. And, uh, and, and he does that. And I, I think, you know, if Bertie Ahern, Bertie Ahern goes on to do lots of things, some of them good, some of them, some of them bad. But if he never, if he retired the day after the Good Friday agreement, I think he would still be a towering figure in modern, uh, Irish history. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I don't think anyone, no matter what their view of Ahern can take that away from him. 
With, with, there is much material available on, on the Good Friday Agreement, particularly as we've just passed the quarter of a century anniversary. And there are many podcasts, including one by Bertie O'Hearn himself. Um, but that's not where we're going to go in this podcast. I think we park it there for now. And we're right at a period where the Celtic Tiger is is about to, is about to roar. So historians will look back at this period and they'll sort of, I've seen this described as the good Celtic Tiger. These early years, you know, before we lost the run of ourselves, for, one, for want of a better phrase, that this is real economic growth, that jobs are going through the roof and that the country is, that there's a, there's a kind of sense of optimism there, which there really hadn't been before for, for yeah, nearly and, forever. Yeah, yeah, I think, uh, uh, I think that's fair. And, and that becomes evident you know, from the, the approach of this government to economic policy and, and, and tax cutting in particular comes in its very first, uh, its very first budget. So around all the time that we've just talked about, you know, the multi-party talks are trying to get started uh, in the north. Ray Burke is uh, being forced into resignation. Uh, the presidential election is going on. Round about this time, Charlie McCreevy is preparing his, uh, his first budget. And it's fair to say, it's not like any of the other budgets that uh, that we've seen before. Now, this is uh, this is a fascinating thing to me, Pat, because again, I like to pull the lens back a bit. It's the late late 1990s. There's been a sort of reconciliation that's taken place between the old parties of the centre left in America and in the UK, with Reaganism and Thatcherism, respectively. In Ireland, as as is often the case, it seems to me, we're kind of coming ten years late to some of these concepts, and this is really Thatcherism arriving properly in Ireland in 1997, isn't it? It's give the money back to the people and everything else will look after itself. It's not quite everything else will look after itself. So there's a very significant, over the lifetime of this government, not evident in the early budgets, but over the lifetime of this government, there's very substantial uh, expansion in public spending as well, which um, is slightly at odds with uh, with what Mrs. Thatcher did. And uh, But and of course, you know, a lot of the great antipathy to Thatcherism was because of what she did and what she felt she had to do before the big tax cuts. So she had to, you know, she had to eliminate... She was in a much worse deficit. economic position she was, in 1979, yeah. so, But we're talking deregulation, we're yes. talking uh, lift, you know, yeah, lightening and the tax And an ideological commitment to low taxes. <clears throat> and McCreevy has that, the PDs have it. If Bertie Hearn had it, Nobody really noticed it uh, before. But McCreevy and the PDs are, McCreevy and Harney really are hugely powerful when it comes to making economic policy. And they, they, they almost exclude Ahern from a lot of, not from the decisions, because he's the Taoiseach, he's the, head of, he's the head of the government, but they certainly worked around them and they talked to, to one another about how to, uh, how to work around him. Because I think they knew that, and, you know, McCreevy in particular knew that Ahern's instincts were not Thatcherite by any stretch uh, of the imagination. At the same time, he wanted McCreevy as finance minister because he could uh, he could trust him he wanted to get taxes down not as an ideological thing but as a as an economic stimulus uh, i think and mccreevy's tax cutting uh, is i mean it's quite astonishing really in some respects and you know, there's one example in his in his first budget. So he goes into a meeting with his senior mandarins in the Department of Finance uh, in, in in November of 1997. The budget at that stage is delivered in December, and and, and McCreevy goes in and he tells them that uh, he's going to he's going to cut capital gains tax. He tells them he's going to cut it in half, and there's consternation. Uh, in the room, I saying, you, you know, you can't, you can't do this. I think it's Paddy Malarkey, is the Secretary General of the Department at the time. He says you can't do that. It'll, it will, you know, completely decimate our uh, tax, our tax receipts projections. And McCreevy says, no, no, it won't. No, no, no. The tax receipts will go up. And uh, and they say, no. Anyway, he's a minister. He gets his way, and eventually somebody says to him, well, look, because they assume that he means I'm going to cut capital gains tax, which was at forty percent at the time, in half over the lifetime of this government. And they say to him, well, look, if you're going to do it, you start off with a small cut this year, but whatever you do, don't commit to another cut next year and we'll see how it goes. And then if it's a success, you can make another cut next year. And McCreevy says, no, 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 I'm going to do it all in one go. I'm going to announce a cut from 40% 
to 20% on budget day. And I'm not going to wait for the finance bill to implement it. I'm going to do it from the day of, uh, of the budget. They've never seen anything like this uh, before in the Department of Finance. But McCreevy, true to his, the way he conducted himself for the entire period uh, in, in the Department of Finance, ignores the advice and charges forward. And, and this becomes the character of him, partly because McCreevy was, he didn't think he'd get the full five years out of it. And himself and Harry discussed this. You know, he wanted to do as much as he could, as quickly as he could, because Fianna Fáil didn't have a brilliant record in coalition governments before this. Or he thought, Hearn just becomes fed up with me. I pushed the envelope too far. So he's trying to do all this stuff in a front, uh, in a front-loaded Although way. Although he's got to keep pushing over the full five years, isn't he? he ke- oh, absolutely. He keeps pushing. So over the whole, so so he, capital gains has goes. From forty percent to twenty percent in his in his first budget, over the five budgets that may that are delivered by him as finance minister in this government, the top rate goes from forty eight percent down to forty two percent. The average effective tax rate goes from twenty two percent down to fifteen percent. So this is very serious tax cutting stuff, and it is done within uh, a, you know a very short period of time. And to give an indication of how. You know, where his priorities lie. If you think about that in that first in that first budget, his first budget, the tax cuts cost him five hundred million euros. The welfare package that day cost just a hundred million euros. So this is this is a finance minister and this is a government that is dedicated to a very unusually intense programme of tax cuts. Is it not cuts? the case as well that he benefits again by rising tides lifting all boats to some extent that social welfare budgets, for example, are going down because jobs are going up? There's all this virtuous circle stuff going on in the yeah, background. Yeah, unemployment, um, uh, employment in 97 is 11%. By the time to get to 2002, it's 4%. You're basically at, uh, at, uh, at full employment. The economy is... Uh, you know the economy is growing strongly. So I think the average growth period growth uh, in in uh, in the economy over this time is something like eight and a half percent. It's insane levels of uh, of sustained economic growth. Now, to an extent, you say we're just kind of playing catch up with the rest of the Western world uh, at this stage, and there's a certain element of truth in that. But we're doing it in a really compressed time uh, time period. So what effect so, does this all have on Ireland in the late nineties boom time? It's boom time. Crazy. It's yeah. boom time. There are, you know, there's fortunes made uh, over this period. It becomes, you know, the o- over this period, maybe more so when you get into the 2000s uh, and the mid-2000s, but certainly a lot of the small fortunes that were used as the base to make big fortunes in the 2000s, a lot of those small small fortunes we are made in this back period. At this period through the prism of what happened in the succeeding decade. Um, but this particular moment is a little bit different in lots of ways, but it is this, as you say, this huge growth, but it is from a very, very low base. So, for example, house prices do go up enormously, but they go up from a very, very low base. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. And and the public finances are, are awash with cash. On that move to cut capital gains tax, so he cuts... Capital gains tax from 20% to 40% and the receipts from that tax double the following year. So, uh, and of course, McCreevy is delighting in having proved the naysayers wrong. And this only emboldens him for further, uh, for further tax cuts and further dramatic moves in, uh, in budgets ahead. And it should be said that this is done by, really, by McCreevy in a very yeah, self-contained so, so way. So is, is, is Ahern completely irrelevant to this? No, he's not irrelevant. He's the Taoiseach of the government. He can fire the Minister for Finance if, uh, if he wants. But the Minister for Finance is an enormously powerful person across the workings of government. This was before the institution of the Department of Public Expenditure. So all those public expenditure uh, uh, functions are still within the Department of Finance. And by a huge distance, the Minister for Finance is more important than any other uh, member of, uh, of the government. And of course, McCreevy is producing this, this enormous economic Growth or this enormous economic growth is happening when McCreevy is finance minister. The public finances have never been healthier. And so Mc- 
Mahern is giving him a large degree of latitude in the construction of his budgets. And McCreevy pushes the envelope on that. So to the extent that he doesn't discuss a tax package in detail with Ahern before the budget at all. He calls around to St. Luke's on the Sunday before the budget. He gives him a draft copy of the, uh, of the budget speech. And he says, uh, I'm, I'm going for a walk around the block now. Have a look at that and see what you think. My Charlie McCreevy impression, and, uh, and again, better than your Bertie one. And he does that, and and he does that. And he comes back and he takes back. I mean, he takes amazing. back the speech. Is that not extraordinary? It. it is extraordinary. I think. Yeah, I think it is extraordinary. On another occasion, having got used to this maneuver, right? Ahern has one of his advisors in St. Luke's. I guess in a back room when a, her, when McCreevy arrives around to drop the budget speech to his boss, let us not forget the leader of the country, to have a look at, to make sure he thinks it's all right. And uh, Ahern gives the uh, it gives the speech to Jerry Hickey, who it is. And a Hickey rings up one of the guys in government buildings and he says, I'm going to read this as quickly as I can, take down as much of it as you can. It's extraordinary, really. Is, but is, it, is there not something pathetic or weak about it, no? From Ahern's point of view. Yes. Now look, Ahern would say, I think, that you know, this whole idea that Charlie didn't tell him what he was doing is rubbish, that he knew what Charlie was going to do. But certainly those instances, I can report with a very high degree of confidence that those instances of McCreevy dropping the thing off. Is that how you got the good McCreevy it, Collecting it again. Uh, that, that is, that is, mm. a, that is a multiply sourced story from, uh, from all sides of things. And, and, and so is it weak? Well, it's not weak if, McCreevy is doing what Ahern wants him to do. Ahern can get rid of him at any stage. That's the Taoiseach's, that's the Taoiseach's prerogative. And Ahern at this stage, you know, when you're going into 98, 99, 2000, Ahern's approval numbers are the off the charts. Fianna yeah. Fáil is cruising for re-election. If Bertie Ahern was unhappy with the way Charlie McCreevy was doing his job, he could have fired him and put somebody else in at no political cost to him. But I think my view on it is that McCreevy didn't discuss with him a whole heap of stuff that was going on, but Bertie liked the results. So can I ask you, looking back now at this remove, to what extent did that government, the 1997 to 2002 government, transform the country in a fundamental way or was it just lots of money giveaways? I think the lots of money giveaways transformed the country to be honest. Um, is the country transformed at this point? No, but it's on the way to being transformed. And certainly by the time you get to, let's say, 10 years of Bertie Ahern in 2007, yeah, I think the country is utterly transformed in lots of ways. The money, the money does it. But, you know, socially, culturally to an extent, the country is a different place, isn't it? Um, yes, you think you've a longer you've a longer memory than I do. That is true. Well, I don't have a longer memory. I'm just older. That's your polite way of saying it. Yes, it is. The country the country is absolutely transformed between the mid nineties and the and the mid noughties. I don't think there's I don't think there's any any doubt about that. I always wonder, and we could go on for years about this about how much agency actually individual governments do uh, do have. They clearly have a lot. But, you know, I, I do look at international factors. There were things that were happening in the world that had an awful lot to do with that. The, the 90s were a very prosperous time for the for Western economies generally. There was a lot of money driven by kind of breaking down trade barriers and things like that that was looking for a home. You had the tech boom, which Ireland definitely was a, was a beneficiary of and contributed to, to the foreign direct investment that happened. And the, the, the next stage of the European Union's development was also a contributory factor. And there is no doubt, it seems to me, that there's something beyond the figures. The numbers are very important and they are the single most important thing. But there's something more indefinable something called mood or confidence um, which happened over the course of that period which transformed the country in a way as well. And then alongside that you have a kind of a generational shift, don't you? And you have younger people coming through on a wave of confidence and prosperity who have a different vision of what their lives should be. Uh, They don't want to emigrate. They don't need to emigrate. And all those things feed into each other. And there's no doubt that all those things happened while Bertie Ahern, uh, while Bertie Ahern was Taoiseach. And so therefore he played a large part in them. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good, I think that's a pretty good summary of it. And I suppose another way of thinking about it is, well, let's say if that fork in the road had been taken another way, 
So let's say, you know, let's say Bertie Ahern hadn't won the 97 election. You know, what happens? Let's say the rainbow government was re-elected. Then I think some things are different. I don't think you have that. You certainly don't have capital gains tax cut in two on budget day. You don't have that really aggressive period of uh, of tax cutting that fuels, you know, throws petrol on the flames of uh, of an already brightly burning uh, economy. And and there's another step in that to come when Ireland joins the euro. We won't go into the ins and outs of it now, but in '99, Ireland joins the euro as. Uh, uh, which is, you know, due to become the currency in 2002, but it joins the euro and um, uh, even though the notes and coins don't come in until 2002, it selects the rate and it begins in 99 and begins a program of, uh, it begins a, a, a program of interest rate cuts because, of course, if there's going to be a European central bank, there has to be a single European, European interest rate. And so when Ireland uh, joins the euro in 1999, um, at its at inception, time when, when some other European countries are under serious economic pressure, of or course, will be. yeah, interest rates. So, so inter- yeah. the, the interest rates in the in Germany, by, by, set by the Bundesbank, are three point three percent at that stage. Irish interest rates are six point three percent. Now, it doesn't take an economic genius to work out that it's not the German rate isn't going to go and meet the Irish rate. The Irish rate is going to come and meet the uh, the Irish rate is going to come and meet the German rate. So this massive program of sustained interest rate cuts, sure. which is adding further fuel to the fire. Yeah, bubbling the bubble, booming the boomier stuff even more. I suppose in answer to your alternative history question, I, I suppose what people would say, and I say many of them actually within this this very newspaper, and in fact you could probably see this argument in some of the some of the editorials um, of the time, would have said that a more graduated, moderate. Um, socially conscious approach, looking perhaps a little bit more towards the example of some of the Nordic countries, would have been better in the long term for the development of the Irish economy than this, you know, woohoo, let's go. Yeah, Charlie McCreevy I thing. mean, I think, look, I think there's a strong, uh, I think there's a strong argument in that. The argument, I suppose that the, an, the real know. answer is, the real answer <laughs> is we, we'll, we'll never know. And we also don't know if it would have been as much fun. But, but, but however, uh, it, it didn't happen. What does happen, of course, is that Bertie Ahern powers through 2000, 2001. Tech bubble bursts in the US in 2001 around the same time as... Um, At the same time as 9-11. As, as, uh, as 9-11, but, you know... This doesn't dent the enthusiasm uh, in Dublin at all. And Fianna Fáil goes into the 2002 general uh, election in pretty much an unassailable position. One significant change in economic policy has taken place, though, over the previous uh, 18 months or two years or so. Um, The Fianna Fáil minister's annoyance with McCreevy's continuing... uh, discipline on spending increases has weighed on him. And I suppose McCreevy was cute enough to know as well that his boss was going to insist on significant spending increases in the run into the 2002 general election. And that is what happened. And so this great self-proclaimed paragon of fiscal rectitude in the Department of uh, of Finance, you know, who would rather ransom uh, his children than implement unsustainable spending increases, increased public spending. And I think the annual figure was about 14% for 2002, which is a lot, but actually, if you look at it in the first six months of the year, spend government spending increased in two thousand and two by twenty two percent. The total of overall government spending increased by twenty two percent in the first first people six, first six months of the year. Now that is pulled yeah. back in the second. People half listening to that, well, some people listening to that may think, "What a what a crowd of chancers. Yeah, I mean, there here was yeah here was you know McCreevy who had you know. The spending breaks on for four years of this while he four years of this government while he massively cut taxes in the six months before the election, the period immediately before the election, shovels money, hoses money at government departments to the extent that, you know, they were finding it difficult uh, to spend it. And, you know, you might say to yourself, you know, people will never buy that. People will never fall for that. Of course, the truth That's why I'm not a politician. The, <laughs> The truth, the truth is somewhat different. Fianna Fáil could well have won an overall majority 
in that uh, uh, in that general election in 2002 disaster held in May, Gale, 2000, May 2002 yeah it's just a disaster for Fianna Gael. but how could it have been else otherwise you know everyone in the country was palpably palpably richer than they had been some of them vastly so many of them very substantially so they're, they're, uh, they had um, you know many lives have been you know completely transformed where full employment Government spending is rocketing. They're paying less tax. They're getting richer, noticeably richer at every uh, at every budget. Wages are going up. In other words, this was a massive open goal for Fianna Fáil. Should they have won an overall majority? Well, I'm of the view that the time for overall, overall majorities had probably uh, had probably passed. I do recall, and so that was the first election that I covered as a political correspondent back in the uh, political reporter back in the Sunday Business Post as it was then. And I remember, you know, going through the poll numbers and the, the C projections at the start of that campaign and uh, and pointing out that actually Fianna Fáil, you know, might well win an overall majority. And of course, the abuse rained upon me from people in Fianna Fáil saying, oh, don't be ridiculous, don't be ridiculous. Nothing like that will ever happen again. And of course, they knew well it was on. And they talked privately amongst themselves about it being on. And Bertie knew it was on. And Bertie also, with this instinctive insight that, you know, goes a long way to explaining his success as an electoral politician, his instinctive insight into where Middle Ireland was, discerned that there was, for all the great appreciation amongst the voters that they were about to express in the ballot box, about uh, Fianna Fáil's stewardship of the country and his leadership of it over the last five years, there was still a bit of an unease with giving Fianna Fáil untrammeled power with giving well, them a majority. Had all this tribunal stuff, the which, which that's you know, right. that's right. very, very bad. And, uh, and so Bertie said during that campaign that even if he had an overall majority, he would still try to form a coalition government with the PD. That would hardly have gone down well with his parliamentary party. Nor, I suspect, with the, uh, with, with, the, with the PDs. And, you know, maybe if the election had been held a week earlier than it was, maybe they would have won an overall majority. There was a Michael McDool, famous went up various polls in Ranla with a a poster that read single party government no thanks and that was the the PD's that was the PD's message in the last days of that uh, of that election campaign single party government no thanks you can't put these chancers in on their own they'll run amok we'll be back to the bad old days you need us in there with them and you know who knows? Did it work? It's very difficult to disaggregate things well, well, subsequently, I, but, but that, something worked. And so it came to pass and Fianna Fáil had a very good election but entered into another coalition, which is a story, I think, for another day, Pat. And that's it from us for today. Thanks to Pat and to our producer Declan Conlon. We'll be continuing our extravaganza very soon indeed with a look at the years from 2002 to 2007, a a period of dips and booms and ultimately a time when the shadows started gathering over Bertie Ahern himself. Uh, So we'll be back with that very soon. But until then, thank you very much for listening.